Welcome to Stageworthy. I'm Phil Rickaby, the host of this podcast. This is episode 331. Stageworthy is a one-person operation, so not only do I arrange the guests, conduct the interviews, I also edit the show, promote it, and I even created the music that you're hearing right now. I also shoulder all of the financial responsibilities for keeping the show going while continuing to give you this show for free. So if you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting it. There are a few ways that you can do that. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people to find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And you can also leave a tip for the show by dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You'll find a link to that in the show notes, which you can find on the website or in your podcast app. But one of the most important things that you can do, even more important than ratings, reviews, or even financial support, is to share on social media. Even a retweet about this episode will help. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the archive of all 331 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby, and my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Hamilton Board playwright, director, dramaturg, and educator, Aaron Jan. Aaron joined me to talk about Porchlight Theatre's Housekeep Project, an innovative, site-specific, immersive adventure through four secret backstage locations at Hamilton's Theatre Aquarius as part of the 2022 Hamilton Fringe Festival. Here's our conversation. Are you guys rehearsing and shit right now? Are you uh, what's happening? Uh, no, no. Um, so it's it's a youth program is what we're running. Uh, Karen and I did a uh, we won a Canada Council grant uh, back in mm. 2019 to do this project. Then, haha, two years of pandemic. Um, but now that Hamilton Fringe is in person again, we're able to launch this initiative. It's a youth program that pays uh, young Hamiltonian artists equity rates to spend a month of workshop writing with us then a month of workshop devising a show. So um, that's the project they're in the writing. Nice. So yeah, got to pay those young people, Phil. When, yeah. When did, when does that, when does that, the project start for you guys? Um, so we're in, uh, we just had our first meeting last weekend. Uh, in this first month, we are just um, meeting every week so they can develop their pieces with my partner, my work partner, Karen and Chetta. And then at the beginning of July, there's a two-week intensive equity-style rehearsal period. And then we open uh, the third week of July for um, a seven-show run in the bowels of Theater Aquarius. And then we vanish. <laughs> we, you mentioned that it's 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 sort of a, a, a site-specific sort of like installation. Like people will be like walking through the bowels of, of, of the theater building. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it uh, it definitely is. Um, one of the things that Karen and I are well aware of is that like youth shows kind of have a reputation for sucking. So <laughs> our whole thing was, how do we make this not suck? And then Karen and I were like, okay, what's something cool? Let's do like weird immersive theater where we actually take people on adventures. Like last year we did a similar concept, except like, you had to drive to sites and you would listen to audio plays at the sites and you would like 
manipulate artifacts at each site. Um, but this year, because we're in person um, and we are the company in residence at Theater Aquarius this year, we're taking audiences into weird spaces at Theater Aquarius. And each performer gets to inhabit one of those spaces and kind of build an immersive solo piece. Like one of the spaces is a bathroom. One of the spaces is an orchestra pit where a live performance of a show will be happening above you and you're in a silent basement with someone who leads you through exercises. Another one of the sites is a coat check that mm. we're going to completely black out. Um, and the, the final site is a very scary room with one door and no windows. So you can achieve full darkness in that room. So yeah, we are sending <laughs> our audiences into weirdo sites, uh, creating a piece of youth theater that doesn't suck. So that's kind of the, the goal. That's, I mean, that's pretty awesome. That, I mean, the site specificness of it is, is pretty exciting. Um, you, you mentioned, look, what is it about youth theater that so often sucks? Well, it's just like, it, the whole thing is like, you go to youth theater generally for like, oh, I'm going to see the youth showcase. They're going to do some scenes. They might do some devised work, but ultimately it's not really about the show, right? It's mostly for the youth to get a chance to like show what they've done, show what they've learned. And there's definitely merit in that. Right. But like, I think the big thing about that is it's like, oh, cool. We're here for the youth. But when you look at a porch light show, it's like, no, you're here for the show. And like, that's not to say we don't sacrifice. We don't sacrifice the education of the young people and building it. But we also keep the idea that like an audience experience is important. And it's important to keep that in mind too. So like, that's kind of the fire that's been fueling Karen and I of being like, okay, Karen's a very good outreach person, but like, how do we make an experience that is both valuable for young people and for the audiences? So they can invest in these artists beyond just this piece, beyond just being like, oh, that was kind of cool. I can see them at, I saw how vulnerable they are. No, being like, oh, there's something here with these pieces. If I wanted to, I could follow this artist further and see how this piece develops and grows. It's sort of the difference between like, like obligation theater and a show that you really want to see. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we would rather an audience, you know, some audiences, they'll be like, well, let's go support the youth. Yeah, I will go, but it's so much better for everyone involved, the, the performers and the audience. If it's a show that people are there because this sounds interesting, I really want to see this as it's exciting. It's a completely different experience. Yeah. I remember like, I think of Concord floral as an example of that, right? Concord Floral created uh, and performed, well, it was directed by a professional director, but like performed by kids who were literally in high school. No one was seeing the show because they're like, oh my God, high school kids. They were seeing it because they were like, this is a horror play performed by incredible actors who just happened to be in high school. So like, I think about Concord Floral as that example um, of being like, wow, like when young people make theater, it can be like not obligation theater. And like, I don't know, as an East Asian theater artist, right? I feel sometimes like, Sometimes for myself, I'm like, oh, wow, people are only seeing my work because it's Asian. But then I'm like, no, I need to break that mold. I need to be like, no, I can make incredible fucking work. And I know I can. So, like, why not do that in my outreach programming as well? That, like, the young people get to create the show with a sense of rigor. And they believe in themselves, yes, but the show is powerful. It's exciting. It's something they believe in. And it's still held to a professional standard. So, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, kind of the fuel under my ass there. I think that's the that's the the really big thing is is the professionalism of it. These kids are getting paid like they're professionals, um, and they're working with professionals, and so they're going to 
there, I think that that's something that not only gives them the experience of, oh my God, I'm being paid for this theater thing, but also like raises the bar. It, 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 it shows them that, that you can get paid for this. It's, it's a hugely uh, important experience for all of them. I'm sure. Yeah. Cause I don't know. I remember when I was younger, like um, the first thing that happened to me, this sounds like I was traumatized. The first thing that happened to me in theater was uh, I did this program at theater Aquarius that no longer exists called the summer performing arts program uh, run by Lou Zampronia. And it was three weeks of master classes. We had a professional style audition that we put up a full Broadway musical with full production value in 10 days. And I remember just sitting there and being like, wow, this is like, this It feels like an experience where it's like, this is what it means to work like a pro in the regional theater. Um, you had to show with your music sh- prepared. You had to learn choreography. He, he ran it like a professional theater, like show. So, and it had such an impact on me as a young person being like, oh, like I don't need to be coddled. Like I can do this program and I can learn like kind of, what it takes to do like a huge show and I can learn rigor. I can learn work ethic. I can learn about what it means to show up to work prepared. And like, obviously there are some things that like I'm doing differently than that program, but like that was really foundational in my own theater, like training before I went to university of like, Oh, you have to work at this. Like, yes, this can be enjoyable. Yes, this can be fun, but there's a rigor involved and there's a joy and a fun in finding that rigor and learning that music and figuring things out. But like, cause I'm being held to a higher standard and someone who meets me as a professional like that, that was really important to me. And like, of course, Karen and I lead with a lot of generosity and we lead with a lot of kindness, but like it is anchored by that belief that like, these are young professionals. Let's treat them like that. And that young professionals can exist yeah. in Hamilton, Ontario. Hmm. That's huge. It's huge because I think I remember my, you know, me going into theater school, all I'd ever done really were a couple of amateur productions and some shows in high school. So going into that, like, I didn't know what I I had an idea of what I thought professionalism was and what was expected of a professional actor, but you don't know until you're thrust into it. So it's good for these guys to number one, have that experience of 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 having the expectation of, of professionalism so they know what it is if it's actually something they want to pursue you know instead of thinking that maybe it's the same as when you're you know fucking around in high school yeah precisely um yeah i don't know and it also means something to karen and i because like um hamilton uh by and large is a mostly white theater community so as two uh theater makers of color like it's really important for us to like be kind of like mentors for like the next generation of artists and mm. color in town. So like, again, it's so important to us that like this show doesn't just become an obligation show that it becomes like, Oh, there's these new Brown kids in town that are making work. And Oh, that work is really, mm. really good. Like it, I don't know. It, it kind of, um, cause we didn't have that growing up. Right. Like, I, I mean, I didn't experience any like yeah. racial trauma in Hamilton or anything, but like my own Chinese-ness was not recognized um, as something that could tell stories. I was like, oh, great, cool. I'm doing this musical. I'm doing chess. I'm doing rent. And I'm like, great. I am an actor. I'm just an actor. But with this one, we're kind of being like, hey, like your stories as brown folks matter. And like, you can use that if you want. Because like in this room, we are excited by that. Like the youth auditioned with stories they created. That's how they they applied to our program. Mm. So like if we can kind of be that kind of like foothold over the fence 
like, fuck it, let's do it. The, the Hamilton scene, I mean, you know, like you said, predominantly white. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, Hamilton has this, I think it's the way that I've heard it described is sort of a little bit weird where there's the professional theater. Um, but for some people, the more exciting work they think is happening in some of the, the community slash amateur groups. And I don't know if that's like a fact, but I've, I've heard a couple of people that I know from Hamilton at least a, year, a few years ago lament that fact um that like the professional theaters the theater wasn't doing the work that was as exciting and the audiences weren't there but you also have this scene that has a lot of potential and it's the fact that it's so predominantly white is sort of like uh something that holds it back because that is not the makeup of hamilton right no that's not if you go out on the street, if you walk around Hamilton, that's not how Hamilton looks. Hamilton is a multi multicultural city. And so the theater and, and the performers should reflect that. To be fair, um, there is a new artistic director of theater Aquarius, Mary Frances Moore, who is phenomenal. She is like, yes, she needs to, she's like appeasing the old subscribers, but like they just launched a new season and like, she's working with almost exclusively Hamilton artists and a lot of her programming. And she's like really trying to get different faces, different voices in there. Like, um, Macambe show was just there. Uh, a big indigenous show, uh, was just there. Um, and yes, they're clothing with ring of fire, but like there's, she's getting in different programming that has not been programmed at theater Aquarius under the last artistic director. But, um, so theater Aquarius is changing, but I think, I think it is, it's the same thing in Hamilton that I keep observing. And I feel, I feel we talk about this on every podcast we're on, Phil. Uh, mm-hmm. is, um, like every time this comes up is that currently Hamilton, um, is predominantly, um, I, I was actually just in Vancouver and it's like the opposite problem of Vancouver. Cause my understanding of the Vancouver mm-hmm. scene is it's so many professional independent companies and not enough spaces. So like, there's all these indie companies in Vancouver mm. that are kind of like fighting over two or three spaces that are able to be rented. Whereas in Hamilton, I feel mm. there's the inverse problem. There are lots of spaces occupied by community venues. Yes. And community companies. Yes. But there's not enough consistent independent work. There is. Yes. There's tottering biped. There's yes. There's industry. And yes, there's red Betty, but there seems to lack a consistent independent season uh, in the city. So like the majority of work that is seasoned and is independent is community theater and amateur groups and no, no, no slide toward them. Mm. But like there is mm-hmm. a gulf of difference between professional independent work and community work. And you can tell in the rigor of their productions. I think community theater has its place. Mm. I, when I was younger, I used to shit on community theater being like, those guys are jerks, whatever. But like there is something to be said about a community that has a thriving amateur scene because there are people in town that really love the theater. That being said, it's the only consistent game in town aside from the regional bit. So mm. I don't know. I think what Karen and I are trying to do with this project, which is called the house key project, our company's Porsche light theater is if not create a consistent scene, at least create a sense where youth can go back home to Hamilton and feel like someone has their back mm. so they can like train with us and build a show. And then when they produce projects of their own, they kind of have that jet pack from us and they have us as like mentors and resources because I think the thing about Hamilton um, is that like, there's only really one professional company in town. The reality is they can't program all these shows from the community that are popping up, right? So all these independent artists give up, but we're hoping with our project is by giving these young people a chance to mount their own work at a professional standard, they feel inspired to stay in the city, apply for and win funding 
and do full-on versions of the 10-minute pieces they're building with us. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, like, I think we're going to keep having this conversation every time on the podcast, Phil. Uh, But it's just the reality (laughs) of the situation. I think there's just, like, the scene is predominantly amateur work because what Hamilton needs is for young people to stay and win funding and build their own companies and fight to make a community in town. And that requires you to stay in the city and requires you to make a commitment to the city. And yeah, I'm just gonna leave it at that. I think it's 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 super interesting because I've been having a lot of conversations lately about about Toronto and and what is it in like it comes down to a lot of times like what is what is the future of Toronto when you know all of the things that make it livable seem to be getting torn down for condos and all this sort mm. of stuff. Theater the the independent theaters are 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 struggling or going away. Like how many? There's two. Uh, like it's like so many different questions. Like what does the place hold? And it's like these are the questions I think that 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 that. Uh, I'm, a community needs to answer like, what is this place for us? And what is, what is theater here? And can I make something here? And, you know, I think a lot of times if you grow up in a place like Hamilton, you look at Toronto and you're, and you're like, Oh, that's where I have to be. But that's not the case. Like Hamilton has an amazing theater culture that can be built on and can, and can thrive. It just, like you said, it needs people to stay there and build it. Yeah, I, I gotta admit, Phil, I'm I'm a bit of a poser here because I fled from my hometown. I don't make work in Hamilton because I know mm. I don't have the patience to stay in that city and build infrastructure mm. for my own work because I know that's a many year operation. And yeah, I think for me, just to answer that question, um, and it's a different climate, right? It's what you're interested in. I have mm. relationships with gatekeepers, like. I know people who run buildings and like some of them have given me shots and some of them haven't, but like, I feel like I'm in that community in terms of like professional artistic leaders. And I just started directing universities too, which has been such like a, Whoa, um, I feel like I'm working. Um, but I understand people don't, some people don't like that atmosphere. Like a lot of my friends moved to Vancouver precisely because they don't want to deal with gatekeepers anymore. They don't want to like have to right. try to get into a company season. They want to do work of their own. And their collaborators are out there. But for me, I think what I like about this city is there are so many institutions that, at least in my case, want to play ball with me. And that's what excites me about being Mm. in the city. And also just like, I don't know, I remember one of my mentors said this, like, where can you be your full self in your artistry? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's this city. Like, I feel excited when I walk Mm. down the street. I had a whole, like, I've been directing back-to-back projects and, like, being able to walk home from those rehearsal rooms and just walk through the city. Ooh, what is that? Did you hear that? Um... No, no, no I'm sorry. No. Okay. I thought I heard some static. Anyway, for me, just like that feeling of like going home from rehearsal and being able to walk through different neighborhoods still excites me. I'm such a fucking loser. Mm. I get excited when I see the CN tower still, when my plane came in for Vancouver and I saw that stupid little needle pointing at the sky, I was like, I'm home. And I don't know. I, I think that's like, I understand people who stay in the city and people who leave the city. But for me, this is the city where my artistry can breathe where I can be my fullest self and honestly where I can work. And I, I genuinely feel that I feel mm. my community I found is in this city and I totally get there's people who don't feel that. But for me, I know yeah. Toronto is the city for me. You know, that it's funny you describe that, that feeling of being on the plane. It, you know, it's been a while since I've, I've flown uh, out of Toronto and returned, but I remember every time, 
coming back. Didn't matter where I was. Didn't matter how much I liked the place I was. When you make that approach and you see the tower, it's like, yeah, this is the place, right? No matter how long you've been away. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about about some of the directing uh, you've been doing because you've had. I mean, I think you you would probably agree that you've had kind of a hell of a year. Oh my um, god! Yeah, bit. like yeah. So, um, in terms of some of the stuff you you've been working on, uh, you went back to I think you you directed at York. Uh, I I wrote I was commissioned at York in uh, late twenty twenty mm, as a playwright. Okay. Yeah, I guess we can talk about how, it. In how order. was that? Was that? Yeah, sorry. I go. mean, sure. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. What was what was first? Um. So. Um. In 2020, this the fucked thing is, Phil, that like this pandemic's been really good to me, which is really fucked up, and I can't really explain why. <laughs> um, like everyone was like, "Oh my god, my career is over," and I was like, "Oh my god, me too." And then um, in June of 2020, I got an, I uh, I was commissioned to write a play for York University season, um, and then like I did that, and then it got produced, and that was my first real professional like producing of my own my own work ever so then i was like wow what a fun experience um and then um i started doing musical theater stuff i won a bunch of musical theater awards in 2021 and i was like wow what a great experience and then like i started getting hired to direct at universities and that's what i've been doing i guess this quote-unquote season like um i started in december i directed an audio play for factory but then in like february of 2022 this year I directed like a show at University of Toronto Mississauga. Then I directed a show at um, uh, formerly Ryerson University, now called the even worse name of Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, and then can we I just, just call it? Can we just call it generic Toronto University? Is that is that the name that we should just give it? Generic Toronto. Oh my University. gosh. The running joke we were doing was we would call it Ryerson when we were mad at it. So whenever we were angry at the school, we just call it Ryerson. I, I'm going to keep calling it XU just because I have not accepted the title. Yeah. I will never accept that title. No. Toronto Metropolitan University is just like, it's also TMU. It's too much university. Like that's the, that's the acronym. It's so like, it's so embarrassing. It's like your embarrassing cousin. You're like, I'm at this wedding. Don't screw anything up. And then your cousin just like smashes into the punch bowl and you're like, it's over for me, man. So yeah, I directed, uh, with, uh, TMU, um, a school that kicked me out, uh, 12 years ago. So that was kind of exciting. And, uh, then Mm. I just directed a a touring show. My first tour went out to up in the air in Vancouver. Uh, it was called lucky. Um, so right now I'm directing a show, a workshop at buddies and then I'm co-directing the House Key Project. And then, Phil, I am going to take a break. I am going to stop directing for the rest of the year and just chill and work on these <laughs> writing projects I've abandoned. So that I hope in well, the I rest mean, of the year. Yeah. I'm just going to like, I think, you, number one, you'll you'll have deserved the break. And also, you know, when you have a project on the back burner that you, I mean, it's a good problem to have. I'm too busy. I can't work on this project. But also, I mean, come on. yeah i don't know it's funny but like i i think like people are like oh my god i'm so burned out and i'm like that never happened to me and then i started working this year and i was like no i'm fucking burned out like this august i'm doing nothing yeah nice yeah i think i think a lot of people don't take burnout seriously i think Mm. and people joke about being burned out but 
Now, burnout's pretty serious. When you burn out, you can't really do anything. So it's so important not to get to that point. So good for you for taking the time off. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think at one point, like during this week, the workshop's going really well, but like at one point during this week, I was like, I, I can't make an image. Like, mm. I don't know how to direct. Like, mm. I, like usually I'm just like, oh, this image is great. But like one day in rehearsal, I think yesterday, I was just like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was just sitting there and I'm like, I'm so tired. Oh my God. I've never experienced this before. Cause I, <laughs> cause I think that's, that's, I, I was telling my friend Jasmine this a few days ago, like, this year is the first year I've actually felt like a professional director because people were hiring me. Mm. And I was like, whoa. Mm. And then I, then I finally experienced burnout. And I was like, this is terrible. This sucks. Mm. So I don't know. I think it's just like burnout also feels like a sign of privilege. Like, I know it's really fucked up to say, but yeah. just like, I didn't take it seriously because I didn't know what it was like to like be hired constantly. Like on back-to-back gigs, mm. I was always just like, I'm going to wait 10 months and then I'll do a fringe show. Hopefully it'll go well. And that's my directing for the year. And now the horrible thing, Phil, is fringe is part of this back-to-back directing season. <laughs> like, I was like, why did I do this? Why didn't I like, why didn't I just tell Karen, you take care of this? So yeah, I, I have one week off next week and I'm literally going to stare at the sky. I'm going to turn on Disney plus and I'm going to catch up on all the Star Wars I've missed through the entire pandemic well you've missed a bunch so you better you better get some popcorn yeah um i want to ask about 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 going like being commissioned by the school that 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 booted you um to 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 write you you went to the school right it wasn't just like you were sitting at home you were like no no the school working on the show right no okay it wasn't the writing i directed at that school so like Oh shit, yeah. right. Yeah. I know. It was like so it how, was like yeah. yeah. No, I just like like the, the we have a little bit of a lag, so we just like go with it. But the the like to to for me, like when I was at theater school, I was like one of those kids who you know, back when they 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 cut people from programs, which I've been speaking to people lately who are like, they do what? But like you know, I was like on the edge of being cut like every semester and fighting to stay in. But like, there's something about like being in after that or being like asked to leave when like, I would feel, I would feel kind of like the shit and a little bit, uh, 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 like, like, like some big shoes going back to the school, you know? Yeah. So like, I kind of went in there being like, uh, cause the, the person who, um, who kicked me out and said quasi racist things to me. She's still teaching there. I'm not going to name her. You can Google her if you need to. Um, but um, the person who runs the program is a wonderful artist named Cole Lewis. And uh, Luke Reese pitched me to Cole. And then Cole said, Oh my God, I'm so excited for you to teach. So like, I think I kind of went into the theater school already having the support of the person who ran the program. So that really helped. But also it kind of felt like, I don't want to say like a revenge film. Cause that's pretty fucked up. But it felt like um, it kind of felt like a chance to be like, I can be what I didn't have. Like I can go in there and I can be this thing that I always wanted as a teacher. Like I can, I can, I can be there for the students, not to like pussyfoot around them, but like work in a show that we all believe in a show called Hookman by Lauren Yee. It's this slasher play. There's these incredible fights in it. It's about a girl who loses her best friend to a car crash and she conjures up like a, um, a serial killer to kind of absolve her guilt with. But the twist is she actually 
drove into oncoming traffic and killed her friend. So she has to come to terms with that. And like, I love the play. I read it in pandemic. It's an impossible show because characters bleed from every pore, blood comes down. Um, But I was like, I'm so excited to go to the school and like direct one of my all time favorite plays. Um, And I hope it works out. And it really did. Like I, I, I worked with an incredible cast and production team that all fucking loved the show. I also think selfishly in their fourth year, it was the only show where they got to play characters who existed in the here and now, like not characters from a period show, which is totally where I love period pieces, but like characters who like lived and breathed in the language of today. And like, it was just really nice to work with actors who were incredible. Like those six performers came to me with so many choices. I've already hired some of them professionally, like, and it was just a good vibe in the room. And I think, I think I felt really vindicated leaving um, having directed that mm. show because I don't know, like selfishly, I never got to have a fourth year show, Phil. I was cut in the first semester. Mm. I was asked to leave at the very beginning. So I never got to finish. And just kind mm. of like being in a room with a bunch of young people who were so jazzed to do this work and who were such amazing collaborators, like it felt like closure mm. in the most beautiful way. And it's kind of funny too, because like I ran into some old people there um, and like my movement teacher like pretended not to know me, which was super funny. And I never ran into yeah. the one, the kind of abusive teacher because I actually made sure she wasn't allowed in my room. Um, but yeah, mm. I, I had a really good experience and like, it was a wonderful experience. And I think that graduating year at Toronto Metropolitan University, they're so <laughs> gifted. They just had a festival called Terra Firma because they were denied their new works festival. So they produced a festival mm. themselves at the theater center. Mm. And I just remember seeing those pieces and I was just like, there is something special in this year. Like they're, they're so giving actors. They're such amazing creators. Like I feel so strongly about the year and I feel so gifted to have been invited to direct the final year classes. They're like final show before they graduated in person too. Didn't have an in-person audience, but like mm. it was live streamed every night. And like, I was really proud of that work. And I think all the students were as well. So it was a fantastic experience. You know, as you describe the show, I, I think to myself about recently, there have been more people that I've, that I've encountered and more productions that I've encountered that have been willing to embrace genre, mm. whether it's horror, we're seeing a lot of horror, or whether it's like sci-fi or something like that. Like, I think for a long time, we weren't seeing this kind of stuff on stages. It's like the theater was like, oh, we're too, we're, we're too highbrow for that kind of thing. And it's so wonderful to see that sort of stuff on stage because uh, horror especially is so much more visceral when it's happening in the room like that. There's like a, a tension that, that you don't even get from a movie, right? Uh, I'm so impressed with the amount of, of genre that's happening. Do you feel that there's like a, a genre resurgence uh, in, in the theater right now? Absolutely. Because our leaders are getting younger. I think that's part of it too. Like, what are we consuming? Right? Like my generation mm, grew yeah. up on like anime. My generation grew up on like Sailor Moon, Power Rangers. This new generation grew up on Adventure Time, Steven Universe. Um, my Hero Academia, um, Demon Slayer, these like larger than life genre pieces that become part of popular culture um, kind of inform all the work we're doing. Because I think like, I don't know, growing up, I pretend to like Shakespeare. There's nothing wrong with Shakespeare. But like, I pretend to like him, but then I realize no, like there are other forms of theater out there. 
and you just need to find the right playwrights for it. Like um, Ki Nguyen, who wrote Ray and the Lost Dragon, has this like really well-known play called She Kills Monsters, which is about um, these people who enter a D&D campaign, right? And they become those D&D characters. And it's this beautiful meditation about grief and letting go of your sister. But like, that's the container. Mm. And I think as our generations advance, we'll start seeing more and more of that stuff in our work because that's what inspires us. Like, that's what we were raised with. Um, I know that like recently, especially with all like, all this stuff going around, there's like a resurgence of 90s nostalgia, right? Or early 2000s mm. nostalgia. I think of Yolanda Bunnell's White Girls in Moccasins, which is like set in the 90s. I think about Turning Red, which is set um, in the early 2000s. Like our generation mm. is interested in different things. And some of that genre, some of that is realizing those kind of larger than life, um, quote unquote, unstageable things and putting them on deck because the work we see and are inspired by is hit by that. So yes, I think there's a resurgence in genre, but I think it's connected to leaders getting younger and leaders also consuming different types of media or also even like established leaders. Like I know Nina Lee Aquino when she staged Banana Boys, Mr. Robot was her inspiration for it in the recent 2015 production. So like Hmm. the more I think we consume media, the more it inevitably makes its way into our work. And I think that's really cool and rad. I think that, I think that's a great, it, it, it is really, it's super cool. I mean, let's face it. I, I mean, when I grew up, um, I'm an old man, so I don't know if you're, if you're up on Stranger Things, but like that is set in my teenage years, right? Yeah. That is like my cohort, like 86, which is the current, where they are currently, is that I was 16. So like in that time, I was a nerd. I was consuming all of the nerd shit, Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, all of this, all of this stuff, reading sci-fi, all, comic books, but it was fringe. And it was mm. not what the pop culture was. Um, mm. And it's been incredible to see that flourish and to, 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 to see it being like, I don't know anybody who's not a nerd now. Right. And so it's amazing to see it, but it also is like why it was so, I think so rare because the, the nerds were like fringe and over to the side and not on stage and not like the media was not consumed for them. It was like, Oh, those guys, you know? So it's mm. great to see, you know, the 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 like seeing the nerd culture become the pop culture and and have that in you know inspire and 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 you know be what's what we're starting to see more of on the stage i've longed for it to be honest and i'm mm-hmm. i'm happy to see that happening yeah i don't know i i love it and i i was taught i think the beautiful thing about doing hookman and the other play i did in theater school which was a weird reality TV show reimagining of the certain two masters mixed with some black mirror stuff is theater can be whatever you want. Like it can literally be anything you want it to be. You want to do period Shakespeare, Mm. do that. You want to do a show with people dual wielding guns and lightsabers and having like John Woo battles in it. Do that. Like we don't have to create the work that our previous generation did unless we want. Like one of my favorite plays, the nether is completely inspired by sci-fi that is pure sci-fi mm. and like i love that shit that i'm, I'm fascinated by that. as long as there's truth in it i think that's the big thing like if it's just yeah. oh we're gonna crib the genre and we're gonna do these things i'm like if if there's like no truth in it then there's no point but like i do think that like yeah. if you can find a truthful way in to those genres and make it live on stage in an honest and exciting way then fuck yeah let's fucking do it 
Speaking of, of, of nerd stuff, I do want to talk to you about, about one of your passions and a, and a bold statement that I know that you've made. And that is about uh, The Last of Us Part Two. I love it. Which um, you've described as uh, 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 one of the greatest pieces of storytelling of all time. I think so. Now, I have to make, I have to make a confession. As an yeah. Xbox owner and not a PlayStation owner, I have not had the opportunity to play this game. Oh, Phil, so do you please, want to talk about uh, this Tell then? me about... I oh do want to talk about it, actually. Okay, I want to talk about, I want to talk about it. I'm going to spoil no, the entire just like, game for you. The, you you know what? I, I might forget it. I might. Uh, you know what? Yes. Tell me okay, about the game. Let's Tell talk me. about this. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Okay. Yes. My yes. obsession is villains as heroes. That is my obsession in theater. That is my obsession in all fiction. I love when you root for an antagonist or you believe in the antagonist more than you believe in the hero. More so, I enjoy when the villain is posited as the hero. The Last of Us Part 2 is a story set after The Last of Us Part 1 where um, the main character's kind of surrogate daughter is the protagonist. Um, Ellie is her name. Joel is her dad. Um, so you played the first game as Joel and everyone had a connection to him and he like saved his daughter from these people who were trying to cut her brain out. Um, and you play the, the game as Ellie. Within the first 10 minutes of the game, your dad dies a horribly brutal death where he's beaten to death by a golf club. You then spend the first half of the game playing as Ellie, killing all the murderer's best friends, driving to Seattle and brutally murdering all of her friends. Halfway Hmm. through, the game then switches perspectives suddenly, and you play the second half of the game as the murderer. And you see her journey in killing the main character's dad and also enduring the main character murdering all of her friends. So then Hmm. it really creates a wonderful moral quandary because it's like you humanize that villain and you go on that journey with that villain. And then the end of the game, you go back to Ellie and you have a confrontation with the person who killed your dad and Ellie chooses to spare her. And it's this disgusting fight where like they bite off each other's Hmm. fingers, they stab each other and it's so visceral. (laughs) And I just remember sitting there and like weeping playing the game. I had never had that strong response to video games ever because like, I cared about both of them. Did I agree with both of them? Did absolutely mm. not. But like, I cared about someone I hated, and I love that about the game. And everyone's like, mm-hmm. "Oh my god, you should have killed Abby." Oh, my, that's the name of the the villain. Oh my god, she should have like, yeah, you should have had the choice. And I'm like, no, you don't need a choice in this scenario. Mm. They're not trying to preach something to you. Just the character discovers empathy the moment she's about to drown Abby on the shores of Seattle, you control it, you tap square and you hold her head under the water while she bites off your fingers. Mm. And then the end, the character Ellie stops because she realizes in the narrative that Neil Druckmann and Haley Gross created that like she remembers her dad and she realizes this isn't worth it. And I think it's beautiful. We see it in theater all the time an ending that Mm. destroys our expectations Mm. and leaves us with a sense of ickiness. But we kind of like are left to ponder, like, why did that happen? I don't know. I think like a lot of video games are about wish fulfillment and power fulfillment. And I love how the last of us two makes us feel like shit. It makes us feel like all of our Mm. actions hurt people and it doesn't provide an easy answer. And like, I understand there's some problems with the writing and some people like, Oh my God, I didn't care for Abby, but you know what? Like, I think something I've learned during a pandemic is like having empathy for people who I might despise or not agree with. And I think that's something that like that game really taught me. And like, I am, I think it's a wonderful piece of fiction because it puts you in a situation where you don't have to feel sorry for Abby, but you learn about her 
You learn about what she likes. You learn about what she hates. You learn about mm. why she killed your dad, which actually makes a lot of sense um, when you find out why that mm. reason is. And you learn about like little things about her, like she's afraid of heights. And it never forces you to take her side. But it does force for you to play for 15 hours in her shoes the same way you play as the person who murders mm. her friends. And I think that is phenomenal. That is mm. so interesting. And I think it's the one time I played a video game where I've been like, fuck, I learned something about myself when I played that. And I understand mm. some people don't like it, but I think it is a remarkable piece. And if you are listening to this podcast, um, I really hope you've played the game because if you haven't, I've ruined everything for you. But I have not been that <laughs> affected by a video game in a very long time. And it changed the way I make art and it changed the way I write my characters and it changed the way I consume media and I'm critical of media. Um, I love it. I thought it was genius. And I think it's, Perfect. I actually think it's a perfect game. I wonder if some people didn't like it for the very reason that, um, you know, they, you know, it made them face things about themselves. It makes them examine things in the motivations and things like that. A lot of times people don't like that. They like, you know, they don't like to be challenged. So a game that does that might make somebody feel conflicted if they're not willing to open up and, and go with it. Right. Yeah. I think, though, for me, I like feeling like shit. <laughs> like, one of my play favorite plays of all time is Nick Beyond's Butcher, which, like, is about um, someone who was, like, assaulted as a child and returns to mutilate mm. her abuser in front of his innocent son. And the kind of question at the end of the show is, like, was it worth it? And I love that mm. because instinctually, you're supposed to take her side. Is God is which just having a Canadian stage ask that question too. Just like, what if it's not worth it? Mm. I love that mm. shit. Whereas an audience you're left with like a, Oh, they're killing all these people. And they said they would, but it doesn't feel good. It kind of feels bad, right. but the show isn't making a judgment on it. The show is just showing it as it is. And you leave the theater with that icky feeling being like, where am I in this paradigm? The characters made a choice, but where do I exist on this binary? I love fear that does that. I love fear that makes you feel like shit. I, I love feeling like shit. It's my favorite thing to feel. I think, yeah, I think there's something about, there's something about, you know, you know, we're facing those things, right. Facing difficult choices, like not, you don't have to leave the theater feeling good about the world, right. You have to go on a journey, mm -hmm. but you don't have to leave like feeling good. You, if, in fact, sometimes if you don't, if you leave not feeling good, then, you know, you've, if the story has been worth it, you leave changed, which is again, a good thing. Um, mm. I think that people sometimes where video games are concerned, discount it at, as, as potentially art. Mm. Right. Um, and I listen, the first game I wept at was the third installment of mass effect, uh, mm. mass effect three, because I played through all that stuff and I'd done all the side quests and all that stuff. Yeah. I wept three times throughout that mm. throughout that that game yeah. and when people would be like uh well you can't really call a video game art i was like if you if it's a game that can give you an emotional experience then fuck yeah it's art yeah i think we've come a long way since like save the princess mm. and we've come a long mm -hmm. way from like tetris although tetris is still fucking great um like i i i, I would like to think now that at least, maybe not for the frou-frou critics, but like with a good portion <laughs> of the public that video games are seen as art. Like I think about games like um, Oxenfree, Kentucky Road Zero, 
um, Life is Strange, um, some of David Cage's less masturbatory work, uh, Mass Effect too, just like this idea of I'm on a narrative experience where my choices matter, mm-hmm. um, where I grow yeah. with these characters over games. Like I love in the third one how Thane is on life support, like how Morden yeah. dies, how like characters yeah. leave you. Your choices matter. You can cause genocides yeah. in that game because of your choices. And I think that's really impactful. And I think, strangely yeah. enough, the genre that you talked about, a lot of it is inspired by video games and just those images from mm-hmm. it, right? Like, I remember my first game I fell in love with, Final Fantasy X. At the best parts of that story, I felt I was responsible for the main characters on the journey. And that, to me, is like mm. what makes video games art is you feel empathy based and final fantasy is not about choices. It's about binary decisions they've decided, but like you are in charge of ferrying these characters to their next destination. Yeah. Mass effects the same way, even fucking animal crossing, which we talked about last time is the same <laughs> fucking way because you're curating your yeah. village. Your villagers have affection meters. You're building relationships with them. And like, yeah, I don't know. Like video games to me are the ultimate empathy driver because they're so mm. popular, anyone can pick them up, but you can have experiences in games that like where you are accountable for your characters, whether the narrative mm-hmm. is branching or linear. And I, I love that about them. And I learn so much every time I play a game that blows my mind. Um, and the reason why I play Disco Elysium, it did that last year, and like I'm 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 in love with the medium. Whenever I'm uninspired, I go back to video games, anime, and movies, and I always draw something new mm. from the well. Hmm. I think there's so much potential in, I think pop culture has, it has stuff to teach us, right? Like it's not just there, the best pop culture, the best sci-fi, the best horror has something. It's not just, this would be cool. Sometimes it's, this would be cool, but there are lessons there. There are stories. There's, there's importance there if we're, if we're willing to see it. Um, One of my favorite moments, just to spill some, some, I don't even know if it's tea, but like uh, recently um, uh, I was reading Kelly Nestruck was reading the Harry Potter series in preparation mm. for seeing the, the Harry Potter play. And it seemed to me that he was really angry that they were making him read this, this pop culture stuff because he'd never read it before. And I found that so fascinating in a, as, as in a theater critic who had seemingly avoided the pop culture and uh, was, was sort of like, yes, I suppose I have to read it now, but he seemed so upset that he had to do it. It was fascinating to, to read. Yeah. I mean, I don't know Kelly personally, so I'm not going to rag on Kelly, but I do think it's just like, and it sucks because Cursed Child is written by a turf mm. and that's frustrating. But like yeah. what Harry yeah. Potter as a series does really well is that you grow with those characters you cannot enjoy that play unless you've read the books. The movies don't count because what makes, and again, I hate talking about this because JK Rowling sucks, Mm. but like what makes the book so compelling is like it mixes adventure with slice of life. The movies don't do that. But in the books, like Mm. Ron will just have an angry day and he'll sit and he'll pout and he'll be shady to his friends because Lavender Brown dumped him or something. Right. And that has nothing to do Mm. with the main plot. But it's just like a slice of life thing. And I think I haven't seen the play. Um, I've read it. And like people shit on the play all the time. I want to see it before I shit in it. I like the play. I think it's kind of cool. I don't like how they like try to force themselves back into like their parents' adventures. I think they deserve an adventure mm. of their own. 
But like those events mean something in those plays to people yeah. who grew up with the books, right? To people who like watch these two characters kind of fall in love and then fall out of love and finally kiss at that final battle. Like seeing those characters, mm. spoilers, broken up at parts in the play mm. will be devastating for those readers. So like, I don't know. I think yeah. episodic fiction is fantastic. And like, yeah, I don't know. That That's my response to that. I think like, I understand like maybe, uh, I don't know Kelly personally, but maybe he was like, oh, I don't have a lot of time in my hands. But like as someone who grew up reading the books, mm. like, yeah, there, there's something to be said about that, about that experience of going to the theater and seeing something that honors the books and not necessarily the movies. Like someone who only saw the movies will not have the same experience as the person who like waited every year or not every year, but just waited for those books to come out and like see these characters grow up with them. Yeah. I think it's too bad uh, what's what's happened uh, like in the in, in the zeitgeist to that series because of you know, the, the turfness of the author, when the series, the books, the characters meant so much to people, to marginalize people, to, to trans people, to, to, to gay people, to people of color, like all of these important stories and all these things that meant, meant something to people. And and then she comes along, just shits all over everything. And it makes it difficult for to get behind a show that I should be behind because of how many people, how many actors is it employing? How much, like, this should be something that I can get behind because of, of, of what it's putting into our, th- our local theater scene. And yet, because, you know, she's going to get a cut of my ticket. I'm not yeah. that enamored of it. I feel so conflicted. Like that's yeah. the horrible thing. Like I feel really, really conflicted. Like I, I know people who've worked on it. Like one of my, my colleagues in Hamilton was the magic consultant for it. Yeah. And he was so excited. Michael Cross, he was so excited. He was like, wow. Oh my God. And whenever he posted, he'd be like, go Michael. But I know like some of my trans friends yeah. would see that and be like, fuck, this is giving money to someone who like is trying to erase my experience, who is rewarded by all yeah. right and far right and not even far right people, some left and some center people who are like, I don't believe trans people are real. Like, I don't know. I feel yeah. really conflicted about the show being here. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating because like it's really frustrating and really disappointing. Cause I'm sure the show yeah, will be great. Absolutely. Sure. Um, okay. Just to change gears again, I need to know yeah. about table tennis. Um, oh my God. Because, um, yeah. So I am I, writing because a I table know tennis play. You've yeah. been, what? Hold on. Okay. You're writing a table tennis play. Tell me. Okay. I need to know about this. I need to know about this. Yeah. So um, during pandemic, I just started writing again because like I did a residency and it didn't go very well. And I didn't really feel like a writer and I was kind of bummed out. So I was like, why am I bummed out? I'm not writing a show I believe in. So let's just write something I believe in. Um, And Mm. I was like, okay, um, what do I believe in? I am really interested in writing about narratives about anxiety right now. I'm really interested in exploring uh, narratives about aging and dying family members right now. And I'm really interested in stories about quests where characters go on quests to try to change something. Um, and when they accomplish the quest, um, it turns out they should have been not doing that at all. I'm fascinated by those stories. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know. I started randomly writing a table tennis play. Um, and it just keeps getting funding, Phil. Um, I was at Stratford, uh, back in 2020, 
we built some physical score. I spent the last two years writing it with the support of Lighthouse Theater. Um, I'm the Urjo Creator uh, artist in residence at Tarragon, and I'm using all of my residency money to develop a choreographic track for the show. Um, but to learn how to actually write the show, I did like a hundred hours of table tennis in 2020. Like myself, a, a semi-pro table tennis coach and his table tennis robot, we met every day, masks on in his basement, playing against this stupid robot and watching me get increasingly frustrated. So like, that's what <laughs> kind of fueled it. Like I, I was just so angry at this robot and I put all of my anger into this show and I don't know, I've been working on it for two years and like, I'm really excited to like, keep working on it. Um, we just had a workshop of like just building physical theater choreography to capture table tennis without balls or paddles or a table. I'm at Tarragon uh, three weeks ago and we're going back in September to like mix original music with it. Cause the whole idea of this play is that like characters in this show are like, they're like symphonies when they play in sync. Cause table tennis is all about rhythm, right? the scoring right. of the match changes. It's like that scene in Scott Pilgrim where they fight the DJ team and like sex ball bomb is like playing something. The DJ team changes the song. Like that's what the match should feel like mm-hmm. again, cinematic genre. Right. So that's what I'm writing. But like, I also realized when I was training with this group of actors who's in workshop, like I really like it. And I'm kind of looking for someone who wants to play <laughs> table tennis with me. Cause honestly, Phil in my burnout, I'm like, I need hobbies, but like, if I go, yeah to like the Trinity Bellwood Center by myself, those old Chinese men and women are going to kick my ass. We trained with them. We saw them play. They are so aggressive. And I want to play with someone who's like, yeah, I take this kind of seriously, but like, it's still fun for me. Like I cannot humiliate myself in front of my old pe- my people of another generation. Like when I was in Vancouver, people made fun of me for not speaking Chinese. I can't be made fun of in my, in this city. I cannot be made fun of in Toronto by a bunch of old Chinese people who are just like, you're terrible at table tennis. And I'm like, I know. So if you know anyone who wants to play table tennis with me, um, not for the show, just for fun. Uh, I they have to have a paddle. Um, they have to have like some experience, but like I'm down. I just want to get good at it again. Because Phil, I need hobbies. <laughs> this is a hobby. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that the pandemic taught everybody in theater is that you need a hobby outside of theater. Yeah, a hobby outside of theater and a hobby where I'm not in front of a screen. Like I was, right. I, I'm still playing lots of video games, but I'm just like. Man, like, I am such a competitive person, and, like, I'm not great at table tennis, but when I achieve spin, boy, howdy, am I excited. So, if you want to if you want to play with me, let me know. We're not going to make this weird. I just want someone to play against, and it can be a rotating group of people, but I want hobbies that take me outside of my house, because I spent too much time in my house nice. in this pandemic, and I'm tired of it. We have all spent far too much time in our homes. Yes. Aaron, thank you so much. This has been, it's always a fun conversation. So thanks for, <laughs> thanks for coming on. Of course. Um, one more thing. Uh, so yeah. I am co-directing a Hamilton Fringe show. It's called the House Key Project. Um, it takes place okay. at four venues at Theater Aquarius. Uh, so you enter Theater Aquarius and you're going to meet underneath one of the flights of stairs. Um, and then you, we take you on a journey into the bowels of the venue uh, we only have seven shows and we only have 10 mm-hmm. tickets per show. So like, oh, shit. if you're okay. listening to this and you're just like, I want to see the show, make sure we're not sold out because like, because the spaces are so small. Um, yeah. would love to see you there.
Can uh, can people buy tickets for for Fringe in advance? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Hamilton Fringe is a new website. It's htfco.ca. Uh, tickets were on sale yesterday, but again, we're not going to do like a big promotional thing until July. But that mm. might be when this comes out. So, like the moment this goes right. up, we'll probably start seriously marketing it. So, if you want to see a really cool youth-driven show and you don't mind exploring some kind of scary places, um, come check us out. We'd love to have you there. Sounds great. It sounds great. And and uh, and and people who are listening, uh, uh, because of the limitation to the number of tickets, should probably buy those tickets as soon as they can. Yeah. 